So some of you know that I am good friends with the Reverend Abby Tennis. She is the minister at the First Unitarian Church in Philadelphia. And being good friends has some benefits. It means that she and I will text each other usually on Saturday nights to talk about what we're going to preach the next day. And last night I texted her a little bit worried. I said, you know, I feel like I have two sad stories for tomorrow with just some of my thoughts in between. And she said, well, what's it called? What's the title? And I wrote back, it's called The Sad Sads. Reverend Lee tells a sad story. Now, of course, that's not what it's called, but that did make me feel a little bit better. (laughs) I want to start today by telling you actually a little bit about how we got here to this last message in our fall message series, Me and We, Us and Them. This past summer, Reverend Ken and I gathered a bunch of our community's leaders together on a July afternoon, one that looked nothing like this one. We gathered together all of our worship leaders who preach sometimes, like Chris and Loy and Frank and Kathleen and Kathy and Josie. We gathered together all the members of our spiritual development ministry who tend to the spiritual life of our community. We gathered our staff from Youth Spirit, Carol, our Youth Spirit volunteers who adapt and share these messages that we share here with our kids on Sunday mornings. And we all sat around this big table over there in Gresh Hall across the lawn. And before that gathering, we shared with that group of people a set of questions. These questions right here behind me. Where are we living out our values here at Wellsprings? How do our commitments at Wellsprings speak to the wider world that we're living in? When we listen for spiritual hunger with each other here and also out in the world, what do we hear? And finally, the last question, what keeps you and the people you love up at night? That afternoon, we talked about their answers. We talked about their answers and the answers of the folks that they know. We took a lot of notes. I actually got my voice recorder out of my phone for part of it. And a lot of themes came out of that day, and actually this year here at Wellsprings, every single message series you hear will be a product in some way of that conversation. But this topic, by far, was the biggest one that we heard. These were the kinds of questions that people had in answering those questions. Over and over again we heard What do we mean when we talk about justice? Do we have to take sides? Is calling for justice the same as taking a side? When I see injustice and other people don't, what are we all missing? Where should we concentrate our energy? What will help What kind of world are we leaving behind for our kids? What am I willing to sacrifice to make a difference? And this one got to me for sure. A direct quote. I'm terrified 
Are you terrified? I'm curious how many of you have asked yourself at least one of these questions in these past few years. Yeah. Or maybe before these past few years. None of these are easy questions to answer. Darn it. (laughs) Since September, Reverend Ken, Frank, our worship leader who offered a message in this series, and I have tried to bring our best care and wisdom to these questions. Ken has talked about how we make room in our hearts for compassion, especially when we are in conflict or are scared. Frank talked to us about how easy it is to just miss each other in these conversations, to tell stories about each other and get caught up in those, and how we can try to bring more intention in those moments. I've talked before about the ways that we can invite people in to join us instead of leaving them on the outside. But that question about taking sides, I don't know if we've really tackled that one head on. To me, it felt like the hardest. We've got this catch-22 in our faith tradition. As Unitarian Universalists, we believe in the worthiness and belovedness of all human beings, no exceptions. At our leadership retreat yesterday, Kevin Donahue said, we're born worthy, we die worthy, and we're worthy in between. It's a good slogan. (laughs) But that belief, it means that we can't compromise. We can't compromise on any kind of dehumanization, no matter where it comes from. We can't stay silent, right? We can't be Switzerland when it comes to living our faith. No exceptions means no exceptions. And that is really hard and complicated. The one who is hurt and the one who is violent are both worthy. The one we love and agree with the one we are on the same page with, and the one whose beliefs we see destroying people and communities around us are both worthy. So how do we think about taking sides? What does it mean to take sides? Last summer, the New York Times published a really beautiful piece as part of its Modern Love series. Some of you might have read those stories, stories about all different kinds of expressions and experiences of love. The story was called The House Where My Husband Doesn't Exist. It was written by this man behind me, David Koloff. That's him on the left. He is a Palestinian-American man living in Oregon. And the story he tells is about... David, who is gay, and his whole extended family who keep up this long-standing ruse to prevent his dying grandmother from knowing that he has a husband, from knowing that he's gay. In the piece, David talks about slipping the wedding ring off of his finger and placing it into his pocket as he stands on the doorstep to his grandmother's house. He's there because he knows this is almost certainly the last time that he will see her. 
She is 96 years old. She is in increasingly failing poor health. And his family is doing that thing that families so beautifully do. Everybody is coming from all around the world, traveling to come pay their respects and see his grandmother for what will probably be the last time while she's alive. We learn from David that for years now, and with his consent, every time someone in his family has talked to his grandmother for her benefit, they have concocted this other story about him and who he is. Assuming, perhaps correctly, perhaps not, that she just wouldn't understand his sexuality. That his choice of a partner just wouldn't fit into her worldview, her culture, her connection to the old country. And so every single time that anyone in his family calls her or visits her, they keep up this charade where they pretend that David's husband simply doesn't exist. David talks about entering the room that day where his grandmother is sitting propped up on the couch. He says, I went to her and I kissed her hands, which I've never done before. I said, I love you, Nana. She said, I'm dying. I have cancer. And then he said there was this emerging awkwardness. As his grandmother tries to ask her grandson about his life, Why did you move up to Oregon? Why leave your family? What are you doing up there? Are you living with anyone? At this last question, he said the absurdity of it all actually starts to hit home for David. He says, I looked around the room at all my aunts and uncles repeating that last question. Am I living with anyone? I genuinely don't know, he says, if there had been efforts to coordinate some fiction. Had anyone bothered to give me a backstory? If we were all going to lie about who I was, the least someone could have done was prepare me a dossier on my false self. His husband, Constantino, spent that day with David's mother. Watching a movie, he assumed, or making lunch maybe at that very moment. But in this home, in this moment, Constantino was not real, erased completely to keep the peace. When he repeated his last I love you's to his grandmother, he meant it. I did feel a kind of love, he said, born of duty and love earned through shared time. But the best kind of love, cultivated through intimacy and truth, knowledge and mutual self-giving, we did not share. I discovered that kind of love in someone else, and he was the one I was hiding from her. I hear this story, and I hear a whole family trying desperately not to take sides. Trying not to make it an issue. Trying not to get into it with each other. Personally, I think they kind of did take a side. But whether you agree with me on that or not, I think we can all hear in David Koloff's own words 
that something else really important and really human was lost here. David's story is an example of a whole other kind of wall that we build, not the wall between two sides, but the wall that lets us all pretend everything is okay, the wall that lets us keep quiet about certain things, keep them off the table of conversation. We don't ask the question that might be uncomfortable. We strike up a conversation with one person in line at the grocery store, but not with that other person. Because we have a lot of stories, some of them built through real experiences that tell us what the sides are and whose side we and they are on. We think that these stories about which side we're on will help us identify who is safe and who is not, and sometimes they do. But just like David Koloff realized, when we believe that that distance is too far, too big to be crossed, something possible is gone forever. Even for the ones that we think we are protecting. When I was in divinity school, we used to have this debate all of the time about sides. It's one of those theological debates that also has like very grounded real world relevance, especially at this time of year in football season. You all know who this is? Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow, who was known for his faith for praying before, during, after games. And, you know, that classic question, right? If both teams are asking God for the win, how is God weighing that up there in heaven, right? How come only one team ends up winning? Whose side is God on? You can find a lot of support in Jewish and in Christian scriptures, particularly the book of Exodus, about this idea that God is on the side of the oppressed, Theologians call this liberation theology. In Latin America, during the time of decolonization, when countries were uh, securing their independence from European colonizers, the Catholic priests in Latin America called on this idea of liberation theology, this idea that God is on the side of the oppressed. You can read it in the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? That idea, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's found everywhere in history where we see people win freedom against the odds. God is on the side of the oppressed. God roots for the underdogs. It worked for the eagles, right? The question that we used to wrestle with all the time in Div School was, what about the overdogs? What about the oppressors? Is God their God, too? And that was like weeks one through two of the conversation. By the time we'd get halfway through a semester, we were just confused enough that we started asking, wait, how are these categories even shaking out? How are they so clear What if I were a black man in apartheid South Africa, clearly oppressed by a racist society, a violent racist society, who also beats his wife? 
What if I'm a kid in America whose sense of self has been just decimated by torturous, cruel, physical bullying, and I bring a gun to school? Whose side is God on then? Taking sides is a lot more complicated than saying who's with me and who's against me. Taking sides, especially for us as Unitarian Universalists, maybe it is less about taking sides with people and more about taking sides with values. Taking sides with redemption. Taking sides with healing. Taking sides with human worth and with love. Wherever it is needed. The author and activist Adrian Marie Brown was asked why she works with both survivors and perpetrators of violence in her activism. And she says it's because there is no one who hasn't done harm. There is no one who hasn't done harm. Working to repair a particular kind of harm, she says, may not be your work, which is fine. But that doesn't mean that the harm done is irreparable. That doesn't mean that the distance is too far to be crossed. If God is on any side, I think her words come closest to articulating it. Maybe God is on the side of repair and grace and redemption. Maybe God is on the side of healing our connections to each other. I tend to believe that human beings are pretty good at doing good overall. But this is one of the areas where I think we very regularly get it wrong. We want everything to fall into easy categories. We want to be able to make a space that is comfortable and safe and to just stay there. To know who we can trust and who we can't. Who's right and who's wrong. And we want to figure that out and put it up on a shelf for safekeeping. Who could blame us? But I think when we are tempted to take up residence on our side, with our confidence and our security in our side intact, I wonder if we might shift the conversation away from questions about whose side we're on to the kinds of questions that David Koloff starts asking, to questions about relationship, questions like these ones. What are we assuming instead of asking about each other? Why are we keeping quiet? Whose comfort are we protecting? And who are we asking, maybe over and over again, to be uncomfortable? What's worth being uncomfortable for? Why do we feel so disconnected from each other? Could we make this better? I suspect that the opportunities to ask these questions are not just closer than we think. I believe they are literally all around us. When we think about our relationships to the youth in our congregation in new ways, 
when our HeartWorks team works to support survivors of trafficking and abuse that's happening to people right here in our area. When, just like the 20-some people who gathered in Gresh Hall on a summer afternoon, when we think about and long to reconnect with the neighbors and coworkers and extended family members who don't see the world the way that we do. These opportunities are all around us, and I will close with one other example of how they're all around us. From right here in our own backyard. This summer, a lot happened this summer. This summer, the Philly Inquirer did a local interest story on this little ice cream shop in Kennett Square called La Michoacana, right here in Chester County. It's a shop run by a woman named Noelia Sharon. That's her at the register. Back in 2002, Noelia was just craving the treats, the frozen treats that she used to eat as a kid in Mexico. Paletas and helados, ice pops, ice creams in flavors that you just couldn't get around here. Flavors like tamarind, avocado, guava, passion fruit, sweet corn, custard sundaes sprinkled with tagine, spice, chili, and lime, and salt. So she teamed up with three friends of hers to open La Michoacana, and it turns out it was a surprise success in that area. On a little strip where there were often new businesses sprouting up and then folding a few months later, this ice cream shop had staying power. The article interviews one of her regular customers, Juan Tenorio, a local mushroom harvester originally from Guanajuato, who says with a laugh that he set a limit for himself that he can only come twice a week. (laughs) But what caught my attention in this happy little local interest story were just a few lines buried in the middle. Noelia mentions that she's glad the place has become popular with locals of all different backgrounds. Because she says these days there are fewer Latino families visiting. With more deportation suites, we have less customers. The other day, the article says, someone came in and quietly dropped off an info packet in Spanish about the rights of undocumented workers. Noelia said, it makes me sad I worry about my business, of course, but also the families, how they can't enjoy themselves. It's summertime. It's time to go out with the kids, but they're not even leaving home because they're scared. For a moment, it says her face is lined with concern. But then she breaks into a cheery smile as a new customer walks in. Talk of immigration fades away taken over by requests for milkshakes and thickly stacked ice cream cones. How often, when we argue about the news and about our government, do we miss the stories of the people living down the street? The people we could learn so much from just by entering into their lives, building relationships, asking the question, making the invitation, really becoming a neighbor and a friend. I really do believe that these are the things that will help us take a step back from the battleground of us and them.
not categorizing the world into sinners and saints or holy or damned, but regrounding ourselves as the whole and holy beings we know we are and reminding ourselves to practice looking at every single one of the other people around us in that same way. Practicing the small tasks every day of building the beloved community that we long for and building relationships of integrity first between me and we. Amen. And may you live in blessing. I invite you to join me in the spirit of prayer. God, whose other name is love. May we find some help from you, from this ideal that we can imagine. Some help that will show up when we are trying to repair or heal what's broken in the relationships, in the communities, in the country around us. May we ask for help when we don't know what to say or what to do. May we remember that things have been broken and repaired before in small ways and in big ways. And may we always try our best to be a part of that work for our sake and for our children's sake. For these prayers I've spoken and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts today, we say amen.